Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, I am joined by University of Utah Assistant Professor of History, Dr. Eric Hirschthal, to discuss his new book, The Science of Abolition, How Slaveholders Became the Enemies of Progress. During this episode, Eric and I discuss the origin story behind his first book, what he defines as The Science of Abolition, my favorite chapter of the book, and what he loves most about his role as a professor, historian, and writer. Enjoy the conversation, family. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. How are you doing today? I'm great, Adam. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. You know, doing this uh, fellowship thing at uh, at APS. So just, you know, enjoying, um, enjoying the time and enjoying the time. It's a great place to be. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, you know, let, let's get this uh, party on the road here, man. So, you know, you got this amazing book, The Science of Abolition. So can you tell us what the Genesis story is behind this fantastic book? Absolutely. So the 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 Genesis, how it began? Of course. Absolutely. Um, actually, not for uh, APS and uh, the library company archives and the HSP were really important. Um Maybe the uh, the base story was uh, in a my one of my early graduate uh, research seminars. I had we had to do you know a, an early research paper, and I was interested um, in I was interested in obviously I mean I came as a scholar or wanting to be a scholar of slavery during the time of the American and Haitian Revolution in general. Uh, and I came across this document that's not unknown by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but was certainly unknown to me, which was Benjamin Rush making an argument uh, in um, making an argument that uh, and, and, and an emancipation argument, an abolitionist argument uh, about black people's skin and basically saying that blackness is the uh, black skin, black physical features is basically the vestigial remains of leprosy, of a disease. Um, and that uh, it wasn't harmful, it wasn't contagious. Um, therefore, white people don't worry, you don't need to not associate with black people. But he went so far as to argue that, you know, the reason they, their bodies, physical bodies remain in a diseased state is because of the environmental conditions of slavery emancipate black people, put them in a healthy environment. He, you know, he was very much kind of had a Jeffersonian human Republic kind of uh, ideology. 
make them independent landowning farmers, and gradually over time, their blackness will disappear and they will turn white. As a young graduate student who knew very, very little, this was, you know, just I couldn't, I didn't, I couldn't, couldn't make sense of it. Um, so this was the genesis, really understanding how an abolitionist who I know with all the white paternalism and, you know, this was familiar, but how they can actually go so far into the physical science and make an anti-savvy argument that was rooted in the idea that blackness was wrong, uh, that it was unhealthy, but yet that be an anti-slavery argument, not a pro-slavery argument, was a problem that I needed to solve. And that was the beginning of a much broader project uh, that went far away from medical science and racial science. In fact, my book goes a far away in trying to get away from racial science. But it forced me to ask this question, well, how are abolitionists, black and white, from the revolutionary period through the Civil War, and it's really a transatlantic story, how are they engaging with scientific scientific ideas to promote abolition and emancipation? Um, so that's really the origin story. And I had a little essay in, in I guess, early American studies that was based off of that paper. Um, but that was the story, right? That, that, that enlightened me to that. There was a story to be told about how abolitionists are using scientific knowledge. And I wanted to really bore more deeply into that story because there is very little of that uh, in the scholarship. And you did quite well, my friend. You did quite well. Um, it, it was definitely an enjoyable read and um, really a book that, um, as I told you uh, via email and uh, before we began here, that really, um, you know, folks say in the dissertation stage, find books that provide you great you know, knowledge, but also great footnotes. Hey, man, thank you. You did, you did both. <laughs> awesome, man. Um, I appreciate it. And yeah, I guess we all, we all, we all live off of each other's footnotes. So you're, you're not alone. Hey, man, look, look, there it is, man. So and I'm um, sure I will be using yours uh, in the coming years. So. Hey, so look, from, from your, from your mouth to, to God's ears. So, and to, to my fingers um, as well. So, so, so I claim that. Um, so, so, so one of the things I noticed is too, you know, the title of the book um, is the science of abolition. So when I saw that and, and read your book, it made me think, um, when did the science of abolition framework that grounds your book come to light during your dissertation and or book process? Um, well, the, the dissertation, I mean, not that it's a major difference, um, although scholars of abolition will kind of want to know, but uh, it was originally the science of anti-slavery. And I think that's anti-slavery in general. And you would know this, you know, in the kind of Anglo-American Anti-slavery is a more capacious term. Uh, it, 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 it tends to include, at least have scholarships write about it, it could include Lincoln, Republican parties, people who were opposed to slavery, but not necessarily part of the abolitionist movement of the antebellum period. Um, so actually, I think, you know, if you're going to nitpick, maybe science of anti-slavery would be a little bit more accurate because I do not only co- uh, cover tried and true abolitionists, both in the early, you know, the revolutionary era and the abolition and the and the antebellum period where those distinctions become important. Um, but nonetheless, frankly, book writing is also marketing and the marketers wanted um, uh, abolition because in my subtitle, I believe there's, or my, the original, so it, it kept on changing. The original side of subtitle had anti-slavery. So then it became science of abolition. But your broader question though, uh, you know, if we get rid of the abolition versus anti-slavery, why the science of abolition? Um, very simply, I thought it was, it was catchy, but more importantly, science is a term that I use somewhat capaciously. I mean, if you look at the history of science, they, and historians of science who read my work, they, they always ask me, well, what do you mean by science, right? Science 
is an amorphous term, particularly I'm covering the the, the field of scientific uh, uh, inquiry basically over a century from roughly the 1750s to roughly to the 1870s. Um, the, the nature of what it means to do science is changing. Um, but, you know, so the science, though, because I do deal with so many different emergent disciplines like, for example, geology, chemistry, which is really coming into its own in the 1790s. Uh, botany, which is older, natural history, which is older, which is um, which is older, geology, uh, which is somewhat newer, the turn of the 19th century. All of this is science. And if you read scientific journals from the late Enlightenment, which is roughly the period that my period is covering, these subdisciplines clearly have their own name. Um, and it's not simply a book that's about racial science. That's part of it. It's not simply a book that's about the natural science, because there is some there is some, you know, what we call political, what was then called political arithmetic today would be called demography. Um, it's science, right? It's, 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 it's uh, people in the European uh, mindset and world, and that includes black people, trying to engage and understand the natural world. Uh, and I, I use, I was thinking about science, how uh, Western Europeans would be thinking of science um, and science, even though, right, there's a lot of technology in there, all of that was subsumed properly, I thought, although not without some justification under the rubric of science. So science of abolition is the broad tent that sort of captures all of these various scientific arguments uh, and also all the various types of abolition that are emerging over this period. Fascinating. Fascinating. And I'm, and I'm glad that you um, spoke to that because, like I said, the, you know, it, 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 it definitely was catchy, um, but um, you definitely see the, the through line um, throughout the throughout the text. Um, and, you know, as the listeners and, you know, you know, writing this dissertation thing, you know, so so questions are always uh, going in my head whenever I'm reading stuff, um, especially when I realize that um, it's someone's first book, which, you know, oftentimes is. Uh, based upon our mostly at least their uh, dissertation. Um, and I'm also increasingly interested in the factors that influence why um, authors, historians and the like use their opening vignettes um, for, for their book or article. Um, so why did you choose yours? What about it made you want to foreground it in your actual book? You know, I, I, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, one, I think it was new and interesting and certainly something that never I had come across in any of, of the literature. Um, and just so you know, what uh, what Adam, uh, for the listeners out there, what Adam is, is referring to is I open up which, uh, this scene in the Great Exhibition in London in 1851 in Hyde Park in the summer. And there's this, you know, really, this is a, an opportunity. It's basically the, the predecessor. It, I, they call it actually the World's Fair. It's, it's the World's Fair where, you know, people throughout the world and literally the world are coming and, and showcasing what their cultures, their nations, their civilizations, but also critically their technologies, their, their, their you know, this is an age when, you know, really, you know, the Industrial Revolution, scientific progress is really at its peak. Um, and this is, uh, you know, a famous world exhibition and something that I had no idea that one of the most talked about inventions that actually wins a prize, the king and queen, or maybe it's the forgetting now, the king and queen or the prince, I think it's maybe Prince Albert or something, right? Show up at this, you know, prestigious event. And one of the most, and they, they inspect this special machine that is, is, at, is uh, promoted by two anti-slavery men of science, both of whom are white. 
and they're writing that this machine is uh, entails a new chemical technology that will um, make flax, which is very hard, a flat fiber like you know flax grows in in cooler climates. It will make flax into a soft, cheap white alternative to cotton, and because this flax fiber grows in cooler uh, climates, that's like the northern United States, Ireland. Um, these free labor areas can grow flax and basically put slave-based cotton owners out of business because this new machine technology will turn that flax, again, into basically a synthetic cotton, if you will. And this is explicitly talked about um, in the literature of the scientists who are promoting this, in the abolitionist uh, literature from Frederick Douglass's uh, newspaper to uh, Horace Greeley, the more mainstream, you know, general uh, New York Herald Tribune, and all of them are very explicitly tying this invention to the end of slavery. And they're making, they're writing with such confidence that science and technology, again, this is all the ideological spectrum of anti-slavery from more radical, you know, Garrisonian slash Frederick Douglass, black and white to more mainstream sort of Republican kind of anti-slavery they're all writing about this technology as the kind of death knell of slavery. Um, And I think this kind of encapsulated what is, you know, the central argument of my book, which is that um, abolitionists, something that we don't think of them when we're, when we get into this literature, right. We tend to think that science or the scientific debates around slavery only revolved or primarily revolved around racial science. And as soon as we go there, we're stuck with the anti-slavery racist racial science that is now everybody knows this now who, you know, you read a, a, a New York Times, right? Everybody knows that it was slaveholders who were arguing that black people were innately inferior, right? And if you go a little bit deeper, you learn about ethnology and this and the other. Well, that was my perception that, that when it came to scientific debates around slavery, the literature told me that the thing of consequence was racial justifications of slavery that were rooted in a racist racial science, I was quickly realizing after, I mean, that was just the tail end of my story, but that were that if you expand your, your point of view beyond racial science and you look at the fields of geology, chemistry, technology, medicine, there is a world of, of, uh, of ways in which anti-slavery figures, both abolitionists and men of science who were opposed to slavery, are using science to aggressively attack slaveholders. And that was a story that I had not seen before. And certainly this new chemical technology that can defeat slavery kind of really encapsulates beautifully that that uh the the essence of my argument and and you know the the book to me one of the more striking parts uh about your book and and really the argument that you make um is really about how um you really discuss science and also obviously its connection to abolition. And I never really thought about the fact that throughout your book, you um, highlight because, you know, I've been, you know, reading all these books about abolition since, you know, I started graduate school uh, back in 2015 at Simmons University in Boston. And I guess I never really realized, you know, science's role. Um, You know, you, you know about scientific racism, of course, but it's like, its role within the actual abolition slash anti-slavery uh, movement slash struggle. Um, and it also made me think about, you know, once again, thinking about more books in terms of 
of healing and, and medicine. And um, it also makes me think about some of the friends I know who are doing like history of medicine and the history of science, you know, especially um, uh, in pretty much early African-American or early black Atlantic spaces where it's like, this is a different landscape to study it as well, you know, in 2022 rather than 2006, for instance. Um, so, so that's a, a question that's kind of a thought that kind of foregrounds other things I'm thinking about. We can talk about later. Um, but you talk about the, you know, obviously the 18th and 19th centuries um, and your part that you talk about, like what it means to do science. And so I'm interested to know what gendered and racialized factors went into who could actually, quote unquote, do science as you write in the science of abolition. Absolutely. So um, when I'm speaking about science, I am overwhelmingly speaking about a Eurocentric definition of science. Um, that is to say science as the overwhelming majority of people in Euro-dominant societies, and that critically, that does not include only white people, right? Black abolitionists, men and women, lived in that world too, and they had learned to speak that language. Uh, I'll put a pin in that because I want to come back to what I'm, what I'm trying to say here. So I, want to understood, I wanted to understand science as it was dominant, as it was understood in sort of mainstream discourse, um, in the late Enlightenment period that I'm sort of interested in. Um, and there's wonderful, right, there's a rich history, history of science. That's kind of when I did one of my fields in. And um, so as I had mentioned earlier, I mean, historians of science today would say, you know, ways of knowing and that kind of, uh, that's a more capacious term and that al allows us to understand other cultures, non-Western cultures' engagement with the natural world. Uh, that comes in in my book uh, to, to, uh, to an extent, and I'll, if I have time, I'll, I'll bring that up. Uh, but again, because ultimately I was interested in how, you know, in these important political debates, uh, public debates, how uh, people who were opposed to slavery, how they were talking about science, they were generally, and this includes black figures, they were not talking about the um, African healing traditions uh, when they were attacking slavery. They were using the terminology and the terms that white people understood. That is to say, Eurocentric science. And they were, again, black and white figures, they were using that sort of standardized definition of science. What, you know, to, engagement with the natural world, publishing in journal. This was a, a world that was obviously very elite, very white, very male. Um, and Again, abolitionists understood the context that they were writing in. They weren't, they were getting, Frederick Douglass, again, one of my heroes, is reads entire books about ethnology only to refute it in the terms of ethnologies, the racist, ra the racist racial science of, of the time. Um, so this is the type of science, I know I'm not being, you know, fully fleshing out, but this is the type of science that I'm talking about. The tough, the type of science that was uh, elite scientific societies, the Royal Society in London, where you are, the APS, the American Philosophical Society, uh, very much a kind of learned elite society. Um, who were those figures? Many of them, of course, were opposed to slavery. Um, and how are they using science? Uh, this was what I was really interested in. Uh, not because I don't agree that there are many other ways of knowing that are often just as legitimate, that that Western science often fed off of indigenous knowledges, whether we're talking about indigenous African knowledges or indigenous American knowledges. All of that is true. And I try to bring some of that into my book. But again, I want to emphasize that when it comes to writing stuff in newspaper, giving public speeches, 
this is what I wanted to get in, in, in this intellectual world, the one that shaped ideas and public debates around slavery. Uh, and this is a world of Eurocentric science. Um, so that was the type of scientific dorse, uh, discourse that I was most interested in studying and highlighting while making clear that many of these white male men of science who are opposed to slavery are saying, um, are often relying, particularly in my chapter on Sierra Leone, they're often relying on, on uh, native people of you know, the Sierra Leone region, including black settlers from the Americas to Sierra Leone, to find out knowledge about the botany. Is it good for free labor? Can we you know, have, quote unquote, legitimate trade as opposed to the slave trade with this region? They are obviously, I shouldn't say obviously, maybe it's not obvious, that's why I write about it, right? There are clearly these white anti-slavery figures relying on uh, these black and indigenous African figures uh, to collect knowledge. That knowledge, the fact that much of that knowledge, particularly on West Africa, is coming from black and indigenous Africans is erased from the official record. That's why it was important to me to get it in my book. Nonetheless, I was interested in the final published work that many of these anti-slavery explorers in that chapter on Sierra Leone are um, are writing and publishing to sh- to make a case that basically the the natural environment of places like West Africa are perfectly suited to free labor as opposed to slave labor um, uh, colonies. Um, so again, this is the dominant kind of uh, uh, definition of science that I'm using while very cognizant that it is not one that I necessarily endorse as the only form of legitimate knowledge about the natural world, if that makes sense. No, no, it definitely does. Um, and and to, 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 I guess, go a little further on that point, too, um, you know, especially on your uh, chapter, uh, The Natural History of Sierra Leone, can you actually uh, discuss a little more about, um, and you, you had uh you know, touched upon it a little bit, but for, for our listeners who um, have not yet, but but certainly will uh, purchase a copy of Eric's book, um, can you discuss a little more about um, indigenous African um, knowledge forms that um, that uh, that the Sierra Leone company and other spaces actually leaned on? Absolutely. I mean, this is really important, and this is where my, you know my debts in terms of you know thinking about about other, you know, uh, a broader, a more capacious, non, you know, exclusively Western definition of science. In other words, a ways of knowing about the natural world is so important. And there's so much rich scholarship on this. I mean, if you're looking at, you know, African healing knowledge, I mean, all of that is basically, you know, part of this, you know, non, you know, non-Western definition of science way of knowing um, that, that way of knowing the term that historians of science would often use when we're thinking about, um, you know, natural world knowledge. Um, so in Sierra Leone, what is very clear, and I, I focus on, on a few figures, uh, white figures who are very clearly exchanging letters with black settlers from the from you know formerly enslaved people in the Americas who go back because they were mostly British loyalists during the uh, American Revolution in the 1790s. They helped settle Africa. Uh, I'm sorry, not Africa. They helped settle Sierra Leone, um, as well as the indigenous communities in and around Sierra Leone who themselves are being colonized. Um, what I was finding is uh, very over, I mean, not surprising, given that it's we're in West Africa now, is uh, if you're looking at these white figures who, okay, let, let me be, what, many of these uh, anti-slavery figures are 
are men of science themselves. I'm thinking men, you know, someone like William Allen, who is the head of the African institution, the British kind of leading anti-slavery society in the early 1810s. Uh, he is also a pharmacist. He makes money. He's a philanthropist. He's a Quaker. He's, uh, and he is basically wanting to promote the viability of Sierra Leone as a free labor colony, as opposed, you know, as, so it can it can be secure the economic profits for Britain if and when they decide to get rid of slavery in the British Caribbean. But to make his case to Parliament, which he is writing his letters, you know, his public letters for people with political power, he needs to show and use his own scientific credibility that look, this region of Sierra Leone in particular has a wonderful environment. It's not nearly as deadly to white people as you think, because white people in the British mind would have to somehow rule over these black settlers. Uh, but more importantly, there is a bunch of natural commodities that can grow wonderfully there. It has extensive waterways. That is to say that we can travel. British Britain can export all of their you know commercial goods and trade it deep into the interior because there's a natural um, there's natural waterways and a geography that's very traversable. William Allen, to get that from, uh, uh, information, he's not going himself. He's based in London. He is writing an exchange, you know, letters of exchange with black settlers. Some is the historians who are listening who, who study a little bit of Sierra Leone, this period, will know about the Friendly Society. That's a kind of group of black settlers who are writing with their white patrons, uh, mainly in England, and trying to say, hey, look, these are the stuff we need. This is the help we need. Part of that exchange is William Allen saying, hey, guys, this is what I need. Can you find me evidence uh, that that this is that that certain certain crops can grow here, uh, that, again, the waterways are good? Are there any um, are there any cures, medicines that the indigenous population is using that I myself can use for my pharmaceutical company to make some profit and show this is a good thing, by the way. Right. Capitalism, empire, and abolition are all part of the same bag in the British world. So this is all good for him. But he is relying very clearly on African knowledge of the of the geography, of African medicinal knowledge to find cures for various ailments. Uh, and this is the way in which indigenous knowledge becomes crucial to Western white elites making the case that, look, this place actually is very you know healthy, has a lot of uh, uh, potential for European investment. Um, so that's, I think, the main way that, you know, you're seeing African knowledge really uh, shape this science, even though, of course, they're never credited with giving that knowledge. You only get that when you see the private letters, which are not published, between William Allen and his African correspondents, uh, both black and indigenous. Well, they're only uh, black settlers, not, not indigenous African, but those black settlers are themselves relying on indigenous Africans. Uh, that's where you see all that really just phenomenal material in those private letters. And well, you just described my favorite chapter um, of, your, of your entire book. So, so, so now that you got mine out of the way, I'm very interested to, to know your answer to this one. Uh, what chapter did you enjoy writing the most and why? And what chapter pr provided you the stiffest challenge to write, research, and or construct? And also why? Um, well, let me, the, my last chapter is my favorite. My anecdote comes from it. Um, I think my last chapter for very, my, my, the book was part of my dissertation. Uh, and like many dissertations, it was five chapters. And again, as I had mentioned earlier, uh, in this discussion, I, I, I came, you know, I work with Chris Brown. He's very much a kind of age of abolition guy. Um, and I thought my project would be very much age of abolition. Uh, but as the project began to develop, 
I realized that it was both about British emancipation and American emancipation. Each chapter goes back and forth, uh, covering roughly the same time period, but the British side and the American side. And these are obviously connected, but it gave a sense of coherence to focus on, you know, the American period from 1717 to you know, the 1810s and then go to the, you know, uh, the breakup of that early uh, or that early abolitionist movement and the rise in the late teens and 20s of colonization. Uh, And then finally, the third chapter that's on America is chapter six, which is my favorite, um, which is the antebellum period abolition. And the other three chapters, right, cover serial time periods, uh, but the British side of abolition. Um, the sixth chapter is my favorite. That's American abolition. I realized I added that chapter when I was on a, a, a fellowship, a postdoc fellowship at the Schomburg, uh, clearly understanding by that point that I needed to get my story to the end of slavery in the United States. Um, therefore, I needed a chapter on abolition. And, you know, that goes through basically the end of the Civil War. Um, and what was so exciting about that period was there is now a trove of printed black documents that for me, you know, having done the book over again, I would love to do the book over again. I would write it very differently. Um, but this uh, this made it that I can find now black people with their own printed publications. Right in the late 1820s, there's an explosion uh, of black uh, of a black press, um, and then ultimately by the 1850s, a really independent black a- abolitionist movement in many ways. Uh, I can see how black people are themselves engaging with scientific knowledge in all its forms. Um, and I can get at, you know, the kind of black engagement or black engagements with science because they didn't by any means all share the same uh, sort of point of view on, on what aspects of science they were going to use and not use in their arguments against slavery. Uh, but writing that chapter was, I think, unquestionably um, the most fun. Uh, it, 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 um, I should also say it was when, you know, the technology stuff was so fascinating, Uh, you know, in the 1840s is if you're looking at the American context, this is where, you know, um, uh, the telegraph is is, is coming into view. Uh, Railroads are really starting, not not nationwide, but regionally are starting to take off. Steam engines have been around for a while, but now they're really, I mean, this is an age very much like our own enthralled with technology, not merely science, but science and practice, which is what technology is. The, you know, the useful use of uh, the, the, the um, you know, utilizing science to help, you know, alleviate uh, or make things easier for human beings uh, and to see how uh, black and white abolitionists, but, but black in most particular because uh, their voices are so hard to get at uh, before then um, in their own voices uh, was just unquestionably uh, riveting. And the last thing I'll say, and I picked out the juiciest quotes in my book, but you know, it's anybody who either teaches American history, certainly African-American history, but really anybody who teaches American history. If you haven't read the speeches of black abolitionists, Frederick Douglass is the most obvious uh, and, and arguably the best. Um, it is a remarkable thing to read. I mean, the power and force that comes through in black abolitionist speeches will really kind of shake you in a way that will help you reappreciate what James Baldwin meant or uh, all these, you know, wonderful black orators of the uh, and intellects of the of the later 20th century. I mean, you see it very clearly, uh, the power of oratory as soon as black people get handle on their own press and are writing speeches, not simply sentimental uh, uh, slave narratives, which is one thing which are trying to appeal in many ways to white audiences, but speeches to their own community. I mean, it is power and force. And when you can get that in your book, it's it's pretty awesome. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And, um, you know, 
I began, you know, graduate school thinking I was going to, you know, write, you know, a, a black woman abolitionist dissertation and, um, you know, it's still in me, you know, black women's intellectual history is, is still there. You know, you, you know, when I, when I get to the, to the, uh, uh, to the job talk phase of uh, graduate school, God willing, it'll be like, uh, you know, what, what's what's uh, project number two? You know, that that could very well be it. You know, um, but I but I can always say that, um, you know, I've been doing new books in African American studies for five years, uh, or or going in. This is now the fifth year, um, and so you know, it's it's really cool to be able to reflect on the conversations that I've had uh, with folks like yourself and nearly now almost a hundred people. Um, since since 2017, and, and more and more, I'm I'm very much interested in you know this is new books in African American studies. You know, African American history is very different, um, you know, than uh, just African American history. I think um, uh, Dr. Sharice Burton Stelly posted on Twitter. Um, it's like, hey, don't uh, don't hit me up for a Black History Month uh, bibliography. Um, I do Black Studies. It's a very different thing. Um, so um, I say that because um, you know I noticed that in your in the acknowledgments of your book um, that you wrote, the revisions to this book were made possible by a two year postdoctoral fellowship at the the Ohio. Maybe I got to make sure I say the for the, so people don't bombard me in my emails. I don't care, but apparently they do. Yeah. They very, very much they do. The football culture uh, f- uh, postdoctoral fellowship at the Ohio State University and without the support of Simone Drake, chair of the African-American and African Studies uh, Department. This undertaking would have been difficult beyond words, end quote. I'm interested to know. How did thinking, like you say, an interdisciplinary Black Studies scholar aid your framing of the science of abolition? Um, the most important, I mean, I, I, to be a full disclosure, the conception of the book was really mostly fully formed. I had to revise my introduction, revise my conclusion, and basically edit, you know, uh, by the time that I was, you know, on that postdoc. Um, I was mostly, I wasn't, you know, doing deep reconceptualization of the project, but um, I was writing a fresh introduction and writing a fresh conclusion. uh, And that's where I can really draw out the implications. Um, When I think about black studies, right? I mean, if you study slavery, you're inevitably these days at the university, at the PhD level, right? You you will inevitably be forced, whether you even realize it or not, be encountering, right, interdisciplinary black studies scholars. I'm thinking Jennifer Morgan. I'm thinking Stephanie Smallwood. I'm thinking, um, I, I just I just had a graduate seminar on, on history of slavery. So, you know, half of, half of the readings were these very theoretically heavy, engaging in black studies, uh, Herman Bennett. Um, all of these were, all of these scholars would probably very strongly, you know, even though they may, I don't know exactly all of them, but most of them, I believe those names I just named, right, got their PhDs in history. But they are deeply engaged in black studies, which, again, um, obviously has a very unique history, uh, but it's very interdisciplinary. It's very uh, theory heavy. It often, you know, is engaging with with English departments. I mean, um, it, by that, I mean, you know, all of the kind of, you know, uh, you know, things City City Hartman, right? All these you know, ways of, of reading text. Um, but of course, it's rooted uh, in black studies in a very kind of, um, uh, you know, a a black centered uh you know always sending sort of black consciousness in in understanding the black past and present i know that's vague and amorphous but you know um that's the best i can do at this late hour um 
what it encouraged me to do uh, working in a black studies department and teaching in a black studies department was not only to engage with the work, uh, particularly in the conclusion, was not only to um, engage in the kind of, I mean, I already had been engaging with scholars like Jennifer Morgan and what have you, um, who are, you know, inherently interdisciplinary. But, you know, the conclusion is where you draw the broader implications. And, and I, I want to, I mean, I still see myself fundamentally as a, as a historian, um, but it encouraged me to really engage with much of the reading about Black engagement with science uh, these days and think about, you know, what are the, the through lines between the story that I'm telling uh, about Black use of science and the stories that people like Ruha Benjamin, scholars like Ruha Benjamin at Princeton are talking about, or... Um, or I'm trying to think some other, you know, off the top of my head, uh, Prescott, Weinstein, uh, some, I'm, I'm forgetting, you know, uh, Catherine M- McKidrick. Uh, all of these scholars are, are really writing Black Studies engagement with scientific praxis today. Um, and, you know, that helped me reading some of their work that was relevant here really, you know, forced me to draw out again, the real world, the present day implications of what it means to say that black people and white people were using science to attack racial oppression in the form of slavery. Um, It was very much a kind of what I would argue is a missing, a, a missing piece of the history when black scholars today who are writing, you know, in a black scholars interdisciplinary way are, unquestionably critiquing, right? We all know these days about, about how technology is, is reinscribing, you know, uh, racial disparities, whether it's, you know, uh, using algorithms to decide your prison sentence or, right, all the AI stuff about facial uh, recognition, right? At the end of the day, garbage in, garbage out. These computers are, are, are reading human-made databases that overwhelmingly, you know, imprison and, and capture black and brown people. And, you know, the fact that an, that an algorithm is discovering a pattern here that black people are, you know, are, are, are overly policed, uh, it makes it seem as if, I mean, sorry, the AI, the algorithms simply learn to, you know, further discriminate against black people when they are, you know, uh, deciding sentences or, uh, or, or these sorts of things. So engaging in that work said, you know, all of that scholarship or much of it, and I'm thinking someone like Ruha Benjamin here you know, while yes, they are overwhelmingly, you know, talking about, I think she calls it uh, what in her latest book, it's, it's um, uh, the new Jim code or something. It's the idea of, of these algorithms are, are kind of, again, reinscribing racial disparities in our society, over-policing, et cetera. You know, all of that work always has uh, a very clear sign that, look, we are not anti-science. We are in fact pro engagement with science. We just need to get scientific knowledge. We need to make sure that black and brown voices are in those spaces, that white people who are in those spaces understand the kind of innate biases that, that, that their current algorithms and technologies have, and we can make science better, not that we can necessarily need to get rid of or, not, or, not, or think that the, the entire kind of you know, way of doing science as it operates in the Western world is somehow you know, corrupt because it, its history is saddled with and it continues to perpetuate racial biases. So picking up on that positive piece of it, which is to say, look, just because it's, it's you know, it's it, racism, uh, classism, you know, sexism suffuses so much of Western science, 
doesn't mean that the project of science is inherently bad. It just means needs needs that we need to figure out ways to get over, get rid of those biases. We need to make the science that, you know, that the science that that this science knowledge actually is useful. And this is at the very at the end of the day, what these abolitionists, especially black abolitionists, are doing, right? They are critiquing racist racial science. They are saying that, look, you are using science to nefarious ends, right? And, and, and Frederick Douglass says in one of the quotes I quote in my book, when he's when he's critiquing racial science, right? Scientists, uh, I think so I'm going to paraphrase so I don't have the exact quote. Scientists will will say what is popular rather than what is true. If racism is popular, they will find a way to make their science comport to that popular views. Um, but uh, at the same token, in the same breath. Douglas is a fervent believer that science has the ability to unite all of humanity, right? And he emphasizes, look, I am not challenging the basic enterprise of science. In fact, let's use science to create railroads, to create steamboats, so all of humanity in all its of diversity can interact together. I mean, in many ways, he sounds like a, you know, like a naive liberal of the early aughts who believes that the internet is going to create human love, but you have to appreciate the fact of what he's saying, right? He's not so disillusioned by the racist science that he's saying, it's all, it's all garbage. I don't want anything to do with it. He's trying to tell science that, you know, you have something good. Just recognize the human dimension of the, your work and how subject to, you know, human subjectivities, racism, et cetera, that you are, and let's make this practice better. And I think that's something powerful that has a deep history um, in black politics that we ought to be aware of because we we are increasingly aware of the ways in which you know black activists has have critiqued and, and rightfully continue to critique the racist elements of scientific knowledge. That's not the only thing that they were saying, and that's I think what my book uh, tries to sort of give a deeper history to. And you know one of the things that you brought up too, you know, is obviously um, very much in line with the world that we're living in today, and in, in the COVID uh, world that we're that we're inhabiting right now. And so um, I didn't really think about this question until you just um, answered my last one. But how has writing a book about the science of abolition and and science's role in human progress and even in certain ways human suffering? In the book process, as we have gone through the pandemic these last two years, how is the, how is the pandemic? I guess um, how does the book coming out at the at the time of the pandemic? How has that made you maybe think differently about maybe not even differently, but I think you I think you understand what I'm trying to say. This yeah, is a, a brand new question, but yeah, yeah. No, I mean I, I you know when, when my book was coming out, you know in in, in May of 2021, right? I was I was. I was, you know, writing op-eds, pitching op-eds to kind of get the word out about my book. And one of the op-eds I wrote, right, very much, you know, the story that we were hearing, and again, and I'm picking up on, on a thread that, that many sort of black uh, health, you know, health workers were, were also trying to say, right, the story of the black uh, health disparities began as soon as that knowledge came in, I think in April was the first stories uh, of 2020 that, you know, hey, you know, black communities are, are, are suffering disproportionately from this. Um, what very quickly became the narrative in the mainstream press was, oh, uh, as soon as I believe it was the va- by the end of that year when vaccines were sort of coming into being by the end of 2020. Again, my times may be a little bit off, 
But all, that was when there was all these studies about black vaccine hesitancy, right? Black that, and and then right, you had everybody saying right, all right, every uh, scholars too, right? Because this is what we we have the books that tell us, right? I mean, go Tuskegee and back, right? Black communities have a deep, long, you know, awful history of being exploited by Western science, um, and part of the skepticism of black communities towards vaccines or, or, you know, Western medicine, according to this kind of emphasis, is uh, a deep history of black alienation to Western science, to medicine, to physicians. Um, and we were hearing this. all, And then, you know, you started to read and I was grateful for this because it gave me some some confidence to write it, not as a white guy, just kind of, you know, out of nowhere. But black communities were saying, look, uh, this is you know, black vaccine hesitancy for A is overblown. We know that it's actually political ideology, Republican or Democrat, or, or, or uh, uh, the, the far the biggest gap in American culture is not age, it's not race, it's not gender, it's it's politics. Are you a Republican? You are more likely, far more like the gap between you know we know this right that it's actually politically based, not 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 racial based, and that was overblown that disparity. More importantly. Right. The, the lack as black communities were still lagging somewhat behind in getting the vaccine, communities were you know, quite the obvious thing. It was about access. It was about access. Right. Black communities have a uh, uh, particularly, you know, are, are disproportionate. We know, you know, we know all the statistics underfunded, under resourced. They don't have a lot of uh, 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 physicians uh, in their communities. And in fact, the distrust is not necessarily rooted because they're thinking about Tuskegee. Tuskegee, it's because they have met very limited contact with medical professionals to begin with because we don't put public hospitals in, in their neighborhoods, because they don't have access to affordable health care, right? So these are structural issues that you don't need a kind of a, a deep history and saying every black person is not getting a vaccine because they're afraid of Tuskegee. You look at the structural issues that they face, right? They have limited contact because we underinvest in black communities. And in fact, what you were hearing, and this is where I'll end it, you know, this piece, you're hearing many black communities saying, no, 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 I, plenty of black people want the vaccine, right? They want the vaccine. They can't get access. This was in the early days. And what that gave me the comment, wait a second, hold on. Black communities are calling and certainly black leaders and preachers and, and health workers are saying, no, 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 we, we, we are people who want the vaccine. We just can't get them access to it. This is the history that my book taps into. Black people are saying, no, 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 we like the science. We like the medicine. We like the vaccine. Um, you know, we just don't have access to it. And this is, you know, a, 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 an underappreciated aspect of, of Black history. Black people advocating for the acquisition of scientific knowledge, of medicine, of technology to aid and alleviate the, their concern. And not only the well-known critiques of science and technology and medicine for being racist and contributing to exploitation, but the lesser known story of Black people using science, medicine, and technology to advance their own well-being. And I think that your answer there actually is a great segue uh, to to one of the last questions I have specifically about the book um, in terms of overhauling understanding um, and engaging with a particular understanding. So, um, you know, got to love historiographic questions is the last uh, particular questions on the book. I got to got to take you back to to fields and all that. Right. Um, So uh, overall, how does your work Overall, how scholars think about anti-slavery and abolition as categories of analysis, especially in connection with science. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so basically, how how have historians of abolition, if I'm just hearing you correctly, how have historians of abolition um, engaged or thought of uh, science when they engage with science? Is that what you're asking? I just want to make sure. Yeah, and, and and ultimately, how does your book go to really overhaul how we understand uh, the histories of uh, of abolition and emancipation? And I say that because the part that got me was when you took us to what not Jakarta but uh, Java. You know, you took us to, you know, um, Southeast Asia, effectively. Right. And so that for me, as someone who did not uh, who is not as as well versed in um, the British Empire history um, of the, you know, of effectively non-African peoples, to be to be quite honest, um, you know, that was like that was mind blowing for me. So it, it also made me think about the what is also happening at the same time that abolition and emancipation is happening and the process is going on. So uh, that, that to at least give you the heart of the question of where it comes from. Okay. Um, I will say uh, there's very little, and that, that was an opportunity for me, of scholars who study abolition, who engage directly with uh, the, fee- the broadly defined field of science, whether we're talking, um, you know, again, all the kind of natural sciences uh, or medicine or now that is rapidly changing. And I'll, I will plug people like Sasha Turner when I'm talking about uh, abolition, Sasha Turner and Catherine Paul in particular, who have wonderful books out uh, in the past couple of years uh, dealing with the kind of, you know, uh, abolition, uh, not not only abolition, but the politics of slavery, which would include abolition um, in the kind of uh, in this, you know, age of revolution. Uh, and they're th- both their books are on a similar subject. They're very different, but they're both wonderful books that are actually starting to engage with um, how abolitions and in that in that case, they're they're dealing with white abolitionists, similar to my book. You know, how are white abolitionists using medicine, knowledge or whatever to advocate for anti-slavery um, or the end of the slave trade? Um, so there's book that is books that are coming out that were frankly came out after my book uh, own started that are that are asking similar types of questions or came out. Sorry, before my book came out. Um but I will say that broadly speaking, uh, historians of abolition have not taken the history of science very seriously at all as something that bears on debates over uh, anti-slavery and abolitionist discourse. Overwhelmingly, they cede this ground to historians uh, of racial science, which, again, is, you know, reams and reams of scholarship. A lot of it is excellent and it still continues to be excellent. Suman Seth has a recent book out, um, right? I mean, uh, Deirdre Cooper Owens, who, you know, a, a colleague, a friend, someone who plugged my book. I mean, she deals with, uh, you know, the birth of, sci- of that's not quite racial science, but it, it, she incorporates, right, the, the, the idea that black women, you know, according to the white, you know, scientific mind can bear more pain and that sort of justifies them not using uh, not using, you know, uh, uh, sedatives while they're doing these gynecological experiments. Um, so there's no shortage of good uh, old and new scholarship on the ways in which um, science is in debt or science props up slavery and scientific racism. And because there's so much of that scholarship, there is uh, uh, abolitionist scholars simply, you know, do what they're supposed to do, which is to say, hey, I don't have time to research that. Well, uh, this is what you know. Science said about slavery. Science said about slavery, according to all this wonderful scholarship, that black people were biologically inferior. And from the 1770s up through the Civil War, right, there was you know there are various iterations of what we today would call scientific racism. This idea that black people, in one way or another, are biologically 
inferior. Um, I was not satisfied with that story. I, I wanted to not simply see uh, Mia Bay has a wonderful book uh, where she highlights uh, what black people, how black people, is, I believe it was her first book from 2000, the image of the white, uh, the image of the white in the black mind, a play on um, uh, Jordan or not uh, George, George Fredrickson books, what have you. I'm, I'm getting a little confused. Uh, and she was, did a beautiful job. And I relied on that in, in my sixth chapter when I do deal with racial science. Um, and in that book, she does a beautiful job of showing how black people were engaging in critiquing racist racial science over the course of the 19th century. Um, so in that way, right. But then again, that book is still centered around racial science, right? It's how black people are challenging racist racial science. I wanted, and this is, again, you'll see in my in, uh, introduction in the entire book, to go beyond racial science. And this for me was, for the most part, you know, terra incognita, right? Regions of scholarship that, that simply scholars didn't pay attention to. Um, the one exception, and I will say, and I'll end it quickly, is, right, many, like when I talk, for example, my whole chapter on Sierra Leone and abolitionists who were involved in Sierra Leone, promoting it, right, many of those sources are, are well known. I mean, I didn't find any, particularly the Sierra Leone, I was, I was relying on people like Philip Kernan, old, and, 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 and Cassandra Piper, new, right? I, was, I wasn't doing anything new there, the sources, but they weren't looking at that work insofar as what it, how it was understood at the time. Many of the natural histories of West Africa are by people who are, we would today call them scientists, we would then call them natural historians, and they're writing in the idiom of natural history, or in some cases as physicians, right? They're trying to give their, what we would call scientific expertise, whether as naturalists, as explorers, as botanists or physicians about the the kind of uh, natural landscape of West Africa. And that's explicitly how they pitch many of those works. They, you know, scholars who rely on those works to understand parts of West Africa aren't, aren't thinking of those works for what they are, which is often scientific text. What my book is, is sort of returning to, to the roots of what those works are. Those are scientific texts and abolitionists were using them because they had the imprimatur of science and they were promoting Sierra Leone again as an alternative to slave plantations. Um, so this is what I'm trying to uncover the kind of, you know, it was there all along. We just didn't see it, I guess, if you know. Um, because, you know, I'm, again, I'm not I'm not relying on uh, there are some documents that are new, but I'm not, you know, on the whole finding a, a new or rare discovered archive. Uh, I'm looking at old archives and realizing what's actually being done here is scientific work by abolitionists or anti-slavery sympathizers. Yes, indeed. You didn't you didn't find a, a, a missing sword of sorts in someone's attic, you know, like they did with Robert Gould Shaw's uh, 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 a sword a couple years ago in Boston or in the Boston area, I, I yeah, believe. That would be great if I did. Uh, I <laughs> yeah. There were some gems. I don't want to undercut myself. There, there were quite a few gems that I did find. And I, maybe for, you know, uh, another interview, we can get to those. But uh, Sounds yeah. Good. Well, well, hey, you know, I'm I'm definitely interested to know what you're doing next, and so we'll get to that in uh, shortly. But you know, um, I'm very interested as we transition to the latter portion of the interview. Um, what excites you most about being a professor, being a teacher, being a writer and historian? What what about that uh, work excites you the most? Um. It has consequences, right? There, you know, I grew up in a. In, in, I, when I say grew up, I should say I was educated in an environment where a common meme in history departments at the undergraduate and graduate level was, you know, I, and, and historians being self-deprecated. Uh, I don't think they meant it maliciously, um, but you know, why are the debate, debates so heated in history? Oh, because the stakes are so low. 
Um, you know, I don't know if you've heard that before, but I remember it was kind of a trope that you would hear around history departments and sometimes even get out in the press, right? Like, oh, they're constantly debating everything and, you know, oh, well, there's no real consequences. So, you know, it's intellectual stimulation. You know, as soon as you start to engage in, in what I would argue, you know, history that matters, black history or more generally the history of race, Again, and again, that's just my personal interest, right? It can, it can, it can obviously be even the history of science in general, right? That is a men- you know, we tell these stories and we want to understand these stories because there are real world implications of it, right? I mean, I wouldn't be interested in black history if I wasn't a white man seeing living in America where race and racism is such a dominant feature of our society. Um, and you know, I, I, this is to state the obvious, right. And again, I, I should also say, I mean, I, I, I'm often torn. I, I think probably many historians who do black history are there's, there's, you know, there are many impulses. There are historians who really want to give history that, that, that gives inspiration. Um, that is to say that shows, you know, uh, uh, black contributions or, you know, the, the rich and radical history of black activism. Um, and I'm often sympathetic to that project. And certainly when I teach history, um, uh, you know, and often American history where those types of stories are most overlooked, particularly at an undergraduate setting, right? I highlight black contribution, black challenging. But, you know, uh, to be perfectly honest, I think some of the um, most exciting work is to when we actually get away from really understand, and again, this is my view, uh, the challenges and the, uh, the real dilemmas within uh, anti-racist politics, if you will, uh, that is within the abolitionist movement. That is to say, not simply celebrate abolitionists for being, uh, you know, rich and radical and, and, and visionary, though many of them were, but understand, right? I mean, when I'm teaching, for example, at the undergraduate level for an American history course, um, the conundrum that Frederick Douglass and black abolitionists face during Reconstruction, hey, you know, all these women, many of them white women, had been advocating for black abolitionists. And they're saying, don't do the 15th Amendment if it doesn't include, right, that you cannot discriminate against uh, uh, women in voting, right? And what happens? Black abolitionists say, look, right, we can't have everything. Let's take half a loaf. Let's take, you know, uh, writing the 15th Amendment so that only black, uh, that it, that it basically allows states if they want to, to bar women from voting, if it means that black men can vote, right? This of course leads to a major rupture with many white feminists who themselves go on to say racist, nasty things. Now thinking again, this is not, this is just a kind of basic undergrad level thinking through the, those politics there. I mean, it really helps us, you know, the argument that I, if, I mean, I, I want, I, I encourage students to, to, you know, to think through that. What does that mean? Does that mean that, you know, abolitionists are sexist too, you know, that for me isn't necessarily my takeaway. I mean, I encourage students to think what they want, but my takeaway is, well, look, it actually helps us understand white male patriarchy, right? I mean, this is a structure that would force black men to choose whether it's black men or women, white or black, you know, that choice only exists because white men in power are forcing that choice, right? They are forcing women or, you know, of any, of any race to fight, with black people over this prize of voting rights, right? It tells us a lot about, not about the, 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 you know, that, that, that black people were somehow equally or black men were somehow equally sexist. It tells us something about the conditions in which they were operating and the, the difficult, awful, you know, awful, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to think of it, uh, you know, bargain that they took. Um, so engaging with those difficult conversations, and that's just a kind of teaching exercise, but 
insofar as they bear in my scholarship, those are the questions that I'm drawn to, right? I, I personally am less drawn to stories, uh, at least writing them, or at least the issues, right? I mean, it's cloaked in a, in a story, you know, of impossible, it's impossible not to admire many of these black figures. But I think actually the most meaningful work that we as historians, particularly when we're writing for an academic audience, is really getting to those uncomfortable situations because they can tell us a lot more about black politics than what many of us already know, that black people have been resisting and challenging and fighting the system for as long as black people have been oppressed. You know, it's it's getting at the, the, the conflicts and dimensions and understanding the you know, the various routes that black communities took that I find most engrossing. And I try in my scholarship to really delve into those moments. And, you know, I think that's a perfect way to get to our final question here. Um, and, and and this comes from uh, conversations that we were having uh, before we got on. So I'm interested to know, you know, you know, Science of Abolition is out. It's it's made particular amazing scholars like the aforementioned uh, Dr. Deirdre Cooper Owens say uh, the Science of Abolition is a brilliantly written and engaging text that succeeds in complicating how prominently science was featured in the writings and lives of both abolitionists and pro-slavery slavery advocates. Hirschthal definitely centers black thinkers and leaders as they engage with how science and scientific thinking could be utilized radically to help dismantle slavery. Now that is a word. So I'm interested to know what next project are you working on that will elicit Dr. Deidre Cooper Owens to say something similar? Now I'm interested to know what that project is. We've been on a, on a couple panels together. I mean, you know, she's working, I, I, I think it's public knowledge. I mean, she's presented, so I'm assuming she's working on a project about Harriet Tubman and, and very much Harriet Tubman engagement with the natural world. Um, and I don't think I'm blowing up her spot there because she's presented work in a public space. So it's been out there. Um, and uh, in a similar, I mean, in a very different way, but only in the broadest sense, I am also engaging in a project now. Uh, you, Some of your listeners may have heard of it, the plantation of scene, how slavery uh, is an important, even central to the emergence of today's modern climate change regime. Um, interdisciplinary scholars in the SES and environmental Henry have have you know, highlighted or, or you know, five, six years ago, you know, put forward this term, the plantation scene as a way to challenge the Anthropocene, which is, you know, the general term that we use for human induced global geological change. Um, and by talking about the plantation scene or variously the Thulu scene or the capital scene, uh, what they're saying is, look, it's not, you know, all, you know, Anthropocene kind of universalizes climate change. It suggests that all humans have equally contributed to climate change. Um, once it was the United States and Western Europe, and now it's going to be India and China. It, no, they're saying, right. If you want to understand the origins of climate change, you have to understand the particular political economy and its particular history, which is Western capitalism. And if you want to understand Western capitalism, you have to understand its roots in colonization and slavery. Um, this is provocative theoretical work. It's already been richly critiqued, and I'm learning from some of these critiques. But what I want to do now is, as a historian, okay, use this concept and assess, well, you know, what difference did slavery actually make in climate change? And I'm learning a new skill set, something that, you know, which is to say how to calculate basically the carbon emissions of slave plantations and slave societies in general. And that's not, that's the backbone of the, uh, of the thing, because I want to give his, I want to be able to measure, right, what, how much more land was, so th the gist of it, the two basic things that I'm now sort of really trying to wrap my heads around 
is before the 20th century, deforestation was the largest contributor to climate change. But not all societies contribute to climate, uh, to deforestation the same, uh, in the same uh, degree or same amount. Uh, slavery, it turns out, uh, is incredible, rapidly depletes force because you're producing, you know, commodities that aren't simply for subsistence, but for global commodities. And I'm finding, you know, I, I found a kind of method, I'm, I'm working with climate, sci- you know, climate scientists to calculate again, you know, for lack of a better word, the carbon footprint of slave plantations and really to measure like what difference did slavery make? And then of course, why? I mean, what is it about slavery that's contributing to first deforestation in these early modern plantation societies? And then critically, the 19th century, which is the transition to the first fossil fuels, which is coal. And that's where we're seeing the story of cotton, slave grown, of course, fueling the coal-powered factories in the British Industrial Revolution. Uh, So slavery is both at the root in that early modern period with leading the charge when deforestation, it is enabling a rate of deforestation that uh, that is unheard of, certainly in the Western world. Uh, and then, of course, in the 19th century, it is uh, cotton slavery is fueling the massive increase in the burning of fossil fuels in those factories. And I'm interested in really telling uh, a story partially with numbers, actually seeing, well, let's see what the numbers are and, are is, and how much can we attribute to slavery versus something else. And then, of course, telling the human story of the development of capitalism, which includes the West African role. I'm seeing, you know, seeing them slave traders, I mean, as as financial innovators. Uh, they are a critical part of the slave, slave supply. And then, of course, enslaved people themselves who are resisting, challenging, relying on, this gets to your work, African knowledge to really try to stall, uh, undermine the emergence of this climate, of this uh, carbon intensive regime. And that is where the resistance comes through. Uh, and looking at alternative world, uh, alternative ways of engaging with the natural world, uh, as and, and and seeing that framing that as a form of climate resistance. Well, y'all, I am excited to to hear uh, more about this project as it develops, and you know the the airwaves of new books in African American studies are always available to you. Um, so that we can uh, have a, a a second round uh, of a conversation. Um, and so, so Dr. Eric Hirschdahl, I am so, so happy that we were able to have you on here today to talk about your amazing first book, Celebration, Celebrations All Around. Um, this amazing book published uh, by our friends at Yale University Press entitled The Science of Abolition, How Slaveholders Became the Enemies of Progress. And so, y'all, please, if you enjoy this podcast and this interview, um, Please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, just, hey, how we going to know how we doing if y'all ain't going to tell us? So there it is. So uh, I'm your host of New Books in African-American Studies signing off again. Awesome. Until next thank time, you. y'all. Thank you, Adam. And thank you, everybody out there for, uh, for spending time with us. All right, y'all. Over and out.